Um, we're going through the book of Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel. We are in Second Samuel, First cha- uh, Samuel, chapter twenty-two. We're not in Second Samuel yet. Uh, we're in chapter twenty-two, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. A regular diet here at King's Chapel, going through books of the Bible. First Samuel, chapter twenty-two. We're going through verses six through verse twenty-three of chapter twenty-two. There, there are Bibles in the back by the sound booth. Blue Bibles in the back. Uh, if you have one of those, if uh, it's on page 272. If you don't have one, go grab one right now. It's okay. Uh, 272, 1 Samuel, chapter 22, verses 6 through 23. <clears throat> as we open up to this section of Scripture, as we're going through it, um, we are now at a place what is known as the wilderness experience. David, soon to be king, is on the run. Saul, the first king of Israel, has really lost his mind. He's not only trying to kill David, to put Jesse's son, David, Jesse's son, we'll see that today, to death. But Saul is trying to hold on, to cling to his kingdom in spite of the fact that God has already declared that his kingdom will be stripped from him, that his son Jonathan will not be king, and that the kingdom will be taken from Saul and given to someone else, a man after God's own heart, we saw. And his name is David. At this point, though, David is not king. He's been anointed by Samuel, but he's not made fully king yet. And Saul is getting more and more out of control. Really, he's he's just unraveling. He's not only trying to kill David, but we saw in chapter 20, he tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, with a spear. At this point in the narrative, chapter 22, David is married. He's married to Michael, or Machel, um, Saul's daughter. And he's made a covenant... David's made a covenant with King Saul's son, Jonathan, if you remember. Jonathan promised, made a covenant to protect David in the present, and David, in a covenant, promised to protect Jonathan in the future when he becomes king. So, so Jonathan promises David, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, and, and, and David says, you know what, when I'm king, I will care for your family, in which he does do so. At chapter 20 closes, David again is on the run. He's a man without a country. It's a painful time, really. He's, he's separated from his wife. He's separated from his beloved friend, Jonathan. What a strong relationship they had, friendship they had with each other. And he's on the run. We turn to chapter 21. While he's fleeing, he comes to the city known as Nob, a city not far from Gibeah. Gibeah is where the King Saul is. And we find David at Nob. Nob, if you remember, is the replacement city for Shiloh. If you remember, Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle was, where the priest was, it was the center of worship, and now Shiloh is replaced by Nob, where the priests are now, and where the tabernacle is. And from there, David, seeking the priest, leaves and goes to a place called Gath, if you remember. Gath is the city, a Philistine city, a city of the, their hometown favorite, Goliath, the giant. And that's where David goes. We're not really sure what would make him go into enemy territory, but he goes there with the sword of Goliath. And from there, we saw last week, he flees, still on the run. He goes to a place, a cave anyway, a place called Adullam, a cave of Adullam. And that's where his family showed up. <clears throat> at the end, at the beginning of chapter 22, his family shows up, about 400 men, uh, kind of a disgruntled group, misfits. The Bible says they're distressed, they're in debt, they're discontented. They join David and they become his fighting army in this cave with his family as well. And then David, like a good son, takes mom and dad from the cave to a place called Moab. Philistine is to the west of Israel. Moab is to the east of Israel. And he takes them to Moab because David's great-grandmother 
is from Moab, Ruth. <clears throat> and he goes there. He brings his parents there and says, keep them safe here. And while he's there, he's in a place we're not sure where. The Bible says he's in some sort of stronghold. and It's anonymous. We don't know exactly where the stronghold is. But he's there in, in Moab. And finally, uh, a prophet comes to David and says, we got to go. We can't stay here in Moab. Uh, that's, that's chapter 22, verse 4 and 5. But we got to leave. And then David leaves the stronghold in Moab and goes, look what it says. He hiding in a forest, chapter 22, verse 5, called Hereth. That's where we pick up the story. He's on the run. He's been all over. He's a traveling man without a country. We pick up the story. David is in the woods and Saul is under a tree. That's where the story is. Now, the clear <clears throat> divisions of this chapter there are three clear divisions of the chapter. Verses 6 through 10, I'm labeling it the snitch. I'm not sure we use those words anymore. I'm using it the snitch. We see Doag, who's in Nob, and he's, and he's telling, who was at Nob, and telling the king, Saul, all about David. Then the slaughter, we'll see a, just a, a terrible, murderous anger of King Saul, and, and just slaughters a bunch of people. And finally, the safety. One priest will escape and survive Saul's homicidal, just crazy outrage that he has. So that's, that's really simple outline. So the snitch, the slaughter, and the safety. <clears throat> Again, I'm sorry, I got a sore throat here. The snitch. Verse 6. Let me read to you verse 6 through 10. Hear the, the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. In other words, he's got a group of men now. Think about that. You're, you're the king and somebody's escaping and now he's got a group of men following him. Saul is sitting at Gibeah under the Tamaris tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all of his servants were standing around him. I want you to picture that. You get a spear. People standing around him. Verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as, to, as at this day. Then answered Doag the Edomite, verse 9, who stood, <laughs> standing right by the servants of Saul. And he says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him. And, and he gave him provisions. And, and he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. End, End of the verse. You see the word conspire. Twice he'll say it. There's a conspiracy. Aren't you glad conspiracy theories are over? Yes, that's a joke. <clears throat> the narrative switches from fleeing David to, to the foolishness of Saul. The king has been informed. David has a group of men. Maybe he doesn't know how many, but he know, we know from the text he has about 400 men. And Saul has gathered his men under this tree. And what does he have in his hand? A spear. I'm thinking that 
He always is carrying around his spear because the man couldn't hit a broadside of a barn if he tried. He has thrown it so many times at his son and at David and hasn't hit a thing yet. It's the same spear we see him in his paranoia state walking around. Now, he's got an army around him protecting him, but nope. He's got to have his spear in his hand. Look at verse 7. Saul says, Will David, will the, will the son of Jesse take care of you? Will, will he take care of you? Now imagine this. He's got his cabinet. He's got his trusted people. In fact, it says the Benjamites are around him. That's his tribe. So all his cronies are with him. And he's still paranoid. And, and he says to them, is, is he going to take care of you? Guys, is, is David going to take care of you? Will you, look what it says, will you have fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? And the answer obviously is no. Right, it's a rhetorical question. But, but I want you to see this. That is exactly what God said in chapter 8. If Israel was going to depart from the man that God wanted to be king, and they said, we want our own king. He will fight our own battles. He, he will guide and lead us. Thank you, Lord. No, thank you, but we'll pick our own king. Samuel told the people, if you want your man, not God's man, chapter 8, verse 12, he's going to point for himself. Commanders of thousands, commanders of fifty. He's going to take the fields. He's going to take the vineyards. Saul testifies to the fact that he's that kind of king, the very king that God said will happen if they want their own king. And Saul asked them, have all of you conspired against me? Saul is, is obsessive. Saul is paranoid. Saul at this point is fixated on his conspiracy theories. Not one of you, he says, has disclosed to me that my son, my own son is in cahoots with David. He's stirring up David against me. They're in covenant together. No one has told me. No one, you almost hear a, a poo-poo in his, his, his cry, a tear from his eyes. No one even cares. No one even cares. No one is sorry for me. And look what he says at the end of verse 8. Saul says, to lie in wait as at this day. You see what the king is saying? Not only is he manipulating his men, he now imagines that David is lying in wait to kill Saul. Attributing to David the motivation he himself has, he even accuses servants, all of them, of conspiring against him. That's what paranoia does. I did a little research. Symptoms of paranoia. Being easily offended. Find it difficult to trust others. Assign harmful meanings to other people's remarks. Being always on the defensive, being hostile, aggressive, and argumentative. Assuming that people are talking ill of them behind your back. Being overly suspicious, not being able to confide in anyone. Believe in unfounded conspiracy theories. Now, don't hit the person next to you. That's not right. Somebody may see that. One doctor wrote this, the thinking and behaviors associated with paranoia can interfere with a person's ability to maintain relationships, as well as their ability to function socially and in work situations. That's our boy Saul. Trust no one. 
No one. Everyone's against me. Listen, David and or Jonathan, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, are not out to get Saul. In fact, as the story unfolds, we're going to see that David has opportunities to take King Saul out and to claim his kingdom. He doesn't do it. He, he, he refuses to take out the Lord's anointed. But the manipulative and murderous paranoia of Saul has an effect, and it draws out Doag. There's always one. The snitch and the traitor. You know what? They say, you will become like the one you serve. Saul, a conniving leader, a paranoid leader, a, a devious leader, draws out a servant named Doag. You know, the Bible says, do not be conceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And in the scene comes Doag the Edomite. Now, just turn one chapter, chapter 21. Who is this Doag? <clears throat> chapter 21, verse 7. Now, chapter 21, verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Where is he that day? He's at Nob. When David asked Ahimelech the priest for food and for a weapon, that day that which David was there, David shows up. Remember, he sees Ahimelech. He's alone, and Ahimelech thinks this is kind of weird. You know, David's, David, the mighty warrior and valiant warrior of, of, the, of the son-in-law of the king, he's all alone. He's the bodyguard, but he's all alone. And Ahimelech gives David, if you remember from last week, what's known as the bread of presence, the, the holy bread, the, the bread that was on the table in the holy place where the, where the sacrifices were to take place and the priests alone were allowed to eat. Not only that, he gives him the sword. He gives David back the sword, the sword which David took from Goliath when he killed him with that stone. And his, uh, when he swung the stone, it hit him in the head and down he went. Doag was there. Doag was in Nob. Doag is privy to the information of what Ahimelech did for David. Not only that, it says in our text that there was a time in which Ahimelech, while David was at Nob, Ahimelech inquired, interceded for David before the Lord, as the priest would normally do. In fact, when Doag says to Ahimelech, gave David provision, gave him provision, says it twice, gave him provision and gave him the sword, it, it, it is, it is it's an expression in, in the Hebrew, it's emphatic, stressing Doag's judgment that Ahimelech was committing treason against the king, uh, against, uh, by assisting Saul. So, Doag is making it very clear to King Saul that what David and Ahimelech were doing was treasonous against the kingdom. All of which is true. I mean, Ahimelech gave him bread. Ahimelech gave him the sword. I, I believe Ahimelech at some point uh, uh, interceded for him before the Lord. All that is true. But the way Doag does it, it's to show you that he is an instigator. Uh, he, is, he, is, he is looking for the worst possible thing he can tell the king in order to get the king even more fired up than he already is. But notice one thing Doag doesn't tell the king. Not always what you say to somebody, sometimes what you don't say. Doag does not tell King Saul, oh by the way, Ahimelech had no idea what David was doing. Ahimelech never got the real scoop that David was running from you. Ahimelech was never told by David, uh, in fact the opposite was true, 
Ahimelech only thought David was doing the right thing by you. He doesn't give him that information. Right? That's interesting. And that just tells you what kind of guy Doag is. But, you know, Saul is not interested in learning the truth. He, at this point, is a raging menace. And his only intent was to destroy and take out anything and anyone he perceives to be a threat to his throne. Saul, here's Doag, and his conspiracy theories are raging off the chart. Case closed. And the hatred of David kicks in full gear. And he now says to Ahimelech and the entire Ahimelech family and the priest, bring them, Saul says, to me. Bring them to me. Now, keep your finger on 1 Samuel chapter 22, and I've been talking about this the past few weeks, because we have some insight into David's mind and, and, and thoughts and heart. How? Through the Psalms. So David wrote a lot of the Psalms, and David wrote Psalm 52. Look what it says if you have a Bible. Turn there to Psalm 52. And you can read the heading in Psalm 52, and it says this. To the choir master, master a maskel of David, when Doag, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. That's the context of this psalm. Okay? Verse 1. David, in the psalm. Why do you boast, O evil, mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah, pause, reflect. You, he says, love all words that devour. Oh, deceitful tongue. It's like David, tell it like it is, right? He tell him exactly what he thinks of Doag. You know, and sometimes as I, as I read this narrative and I see this story unfolding, sometimes I wonder... If we, the church, the children of God, I wonder, sometimes I wonder if we don't really understand that the Antichrist is alive and well today. That there are those spirits, as, as she mentioned, Terry mentioned, that oppose the gospel, that oppose God's people. Satan and his evil emissaries are on the prowl looking and seeking to devour and to murder and to deceive. Jesus himself said the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar. He's the father of lies. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter wrote to the churches, be sober-minded, be watchful. The, the, The adversary, your adversary, my adversary, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith. Now sometimes we may be persecuted because of our own stupidity. Shame on us. But when we are persecuted because of our union with Christ, because of the gospel's sake, we should expect a fight. We should expect some hostility toward us. We have an enemy. We do not wrestle a fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, uh, the Paul writes, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. And therefore, what does he say? He says, take on the full armor of God so you can fight against 
the enemy schemes. God gives us the armor. He gives us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. But I think sometimes we're not in the fight because we fail to recognize there is one. And you know what, family? We're already behind at that point. I hate to say it. We're losing ground if we don't recognize there's a spiritual battle, that the, the Antichrist will come, but there are Antichrists, those who oppose God, those who oppose God's people, those who are affront to the gospel. Just like that, Saul launches into a, a brutal attack of God's people. Verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahiatub and his father's house. The priests who were at Nob plural, the, all the priests, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Hiatub. And he said, here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? Is that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, among whom? Among who among all the servants is so faithful as David? Who, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. To say in Italian, gods, I know nothing. Ahimelech's defense is true. David has served King Saul faithfully. David has the support of Michael, the, the daughter of Saul. Saul had entrusted David with considerable military responsibilities. I mean, he's the best guy you got. And the king said, verse 16, you'll surely die. Whoa. Ahimelech, you and your father's house. You see, in, in Saul's conspiracy, out of control, downward spiral, all the priests are part of the conspiracy. And as he brings Ahimelech, he brings all the priests to his place. Now, you can just imagine for a moment what that meeting must have been like. The priests gathered around and military army around them, and they are saying, you're going to die. Lance Morrow, he's a writer for Times Magazine, wrote an article in 1996 called The Power of Paranoia. It was written to reveal what it was like to live under Joseph Stalin, the Soviet Union, early 20th century. He writes this, Stalin's dinner, Stalin's dinners in the Kremlin went on all night. He would sit at a long table and force his ministers and cronies to drink hour after hour, while he plotted and probed, flattered and terrified them. At dawn, when their brains were numb with fear and vodka and confusion, the NKVD, the interior guards, might lead one or two of the men away without explanation to be shot. This was the physics of paranoia under laboratory conditions. For every action, an opposite reaction. Paranoia induces paranoia. Stalin 
refracted violence, fear through alcohol, then presided over a reciprocal mind game that ended in death, end quote. That's what it's like. I mean, it's one thing to live under a, 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 a person who is paranoid and, 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 and hateful, but it's another thing to live under someone who is that, who's a dictator, like Stalin, like Nero, like Hitler, with absolute power. That's another story. They can do whatever they please. There's no one to stop them. So it is with Saul. He's a madman, no one to stop him. He turns, verse 17, and tells the guard who stood there, turn and kill the priest of the Lord. Now, listen to that. He didn't just say, turn and kill the priest. He said, turn and kill the priest of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Now, that's interesting. Have you heard that before? Do you remember chapter 14? At chapter 14, uh, uh, Saul made, made a vow earlier that, that no one were to eat, even though they had uh, this military victory. And what did Jonathan do? His own son ate a little honey from the ground. And when all Israel found out it was him who violated the stupid vow of, of, of his father, King Saul, King Saul said, put him to death. And Israel said, no, no, we're not doing that. I know you're the king. We're not doing that. You, you, you're out of your mind. We're stepping in. Enough is enough. That's what we see right here. And, and the servant's like, we're not doing that. This conspiracy, this paranoia, you're out of control. We're, we're not doing that. And I'm sure that only led to more paranoia. <laughs> Greater conspiracy. See? Yeah, everybody is against me. You could see him just out of control, right? Verse 18. Then the king said to Doag, You turn, you strike the priest. And Doag the Edomite turned, struck down the priest. He killed on that day 85 people who wore the linen ephod, priests. And, verse 19, Nob, the city of the priests he put to the sword, both man and woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. You see, the Edomites were enemies of God. He had no problem doing what Saul asked him to do. Eighty-five dead priests. And that's not enough. He sends them to Nob. Go to Nob. In fact, take out the whole city. Josephus, he's a Jewish historian, said there were probably 300 people in that city. And altogether, he killed 385. We're not sure exactly how many. I'm just throwing it out there. But to add insult upon insult, King Saul... The one who was told by God through the prophet to go to the Amalekites back in chapter 15 and take them out because of their evil, spare no one, a divine decree of God. He disobeys. Remember, he, he, he spared the best oxen and cattle and he spared the life of the king. He disobeyed God. And here... He takes them all out, those who belong to God. He's so enraged, he obliviates an entire town of God's people, leaving no one alive. How low can you go? How low can you go? First, I want us to see, and this is hard. You need to understand, family, listen. You need to understand that God already told them this was going to happen. 
As brutal and unjust as this was, we must recall the prophecy from chapter 2, verses 30 through 36. If you have a Bible, you can turn now. I'm just going to read three verses for you. Chapter 2, verse 31 says this. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, the days are coming when I will, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. He's talking to Eli, if you remember, and the priesthood of Eli. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of, who, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out. To grieve his heart, and the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. He is talking to Eli, Eli's sons. Ahimelech is his grandson. He's talking about the lineage and the line and the lineage of Eli. The word that had been spoken years before has now come to pass in the slaughter of Gibeah and Nob. Listen. Because God says something does not in any way mean God is the author of evil. We must place the blame where it belongs. That blame belongs on Saul and his snitch, the traitor, the uh, Edomite Doag. And the Antichrist who puts people up to murdering God's people. it, It is a loathsome wickedness for which Saul and Doag are fully responsible. And it is clear Fulfillment of the word that God has already spoken. It is both. You know what that tells me? You know what that should, re- should remind us, should, should drive home for us this morning? That even the evil one, God's enemies, and even the evil heart of man that opposes God's kingdom only brings to pass God's word, God's wise and holy purposes in all the universe. The truth is clear, yet mysterious. The truth is plain, yet not simple. And it should not be, it, it, it should be familiar to us that God would take the evil of this world and work it out for his glory. If you're not certain about whether that's true or not, the early church preached it. The early church prayed it in Acts chapter 2. Peter unpacks this reality of of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, moving all things down for his holy purposes in the cross. He says, this Jesus, the one you crucified, who is delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. You carried out that in which God has ordained. And then Peter prays in chapter 4. Truly in this city we gather together around your holy servant. Peter's talking to the Father. Around your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand, Lord, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The early church preached it. The early church prayed it. And even during the dark days of Saul's worst crimes, God is fulfilling his word to Israel. God is accomplishing his purposes through David. 
We must be careful. We don't know. The, we, can't, we can't say we know the, the infinite mind and the holy purpose of God when we, when we suffer. We don't know always what's going on, but we do know that he is sovereign. All things work together for his good and for his purposes. And we see Saul, even in the midst of this, joining the infamous, infamous company. He stands among the ranks of Pharaoh, who ordered every son to be born to the Hebrew family and cast into the Nile. He becomes a teammate to the Antichrist, Balak, and Balaam, who was cursed, who by his curse and counsel plotted to destroy Abraham's seed. He stands with the Antichrist, Jezebel, who tried to purge the prophets of Yahweh in 1 Kings, and with the Antichrist, with uh, Athaliah, who wiped out, tried to wipe out almost the whole Davidic seed in 2 Kings chapter 11. In all of this, God has the final say. And God's sovereignty, even in the midst of suffering, does not mean that it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that when we suffer, we are deeply hurt to trust God. To trust him in in his sovereignty and his wise and holy purposes does not dismiss and take away pain. And, And if you don't feel pain, if you don't feel hurt by hard, arduous, tough circumstances, there's something else going on. It's supposed to feel. We are supposed to have pain. God is sovereign. John Piper in his book called Suffering and the Sovereignty of God says this. It's succinct, but it's good. Piper says this. The evil and suffering in this world are greater than any of us comprehend. But evil and suffering are not ultimate. God is. Satan, the great lover of evil and suffering, is not sovereign. God is. End quote. Scripture tells us in Daniel that God does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4. Isaiah 46, God declares the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purposes. I commend those books to you. I believe Piper's book, Suffering the Sovereignty of God, is free online. P, uh, you get a PDF. Also, another book, if, you, if you're wondering about suffering and sovereignty and how they come together, there's a book by a man by the name of Jerry Bridges. Maybe you heard of him. He wrote a book called God's Sovereignty, Our Suffering. In it, in it he writes this. In order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith, not of sense. We must shape our vision of God by the Bible, not by our experiences. God never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish his purpose. And his glory is for and his purpose is for his glory and our good. Therefore, he says, we can trust him when our hearts are aching or our bodies are racked with pain. End quote. Trusting God in the midst of that. We're going to see that's exactly what David does. The snitch, the slaughter, and now finally the safety. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, say that five times fast, the son of Ahiatub, named Abiathar, escaped and he fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew, you can almost hear it, right? I knew on that day. When Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely snitch and tell Saul. All right, I added that, but you know what I mean. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. 
For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Providentially. <laughs> Only one of the Aaronic priests, Abiathar, the great-great-grandson of Eli, the son of Ahimelech, escapes. And he goes to David and he says, listen, this is what's going on. And David recognizes, however unwittingly, that he is implicated in this massacre, in this slaughter. And no matter what we think about David's conduct when he was at Nob, his false statements, we shouldn't miss the, the clear contrast. David has taken responsibility of something that Saul never does. The flesh and the spirit. Man, we talked about that. The, 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 Saul is a man of the flesh. David is a man of the spirit. I think David is saying... When he's, when he's acknowledging his fault, that he should have foreseen and somehow dealt with Doag, knowing that this man was likely to leave Nob and go tell Saul everything that had taken place. It's not so much what David did, it's what David didn't do. It's not so much what David told Ahimelech. I think David was trying to spare Ahimelech, right, wrong, or indifferent. But what David didn't do is say, Get him. Don't let him go. I think that's, what he's, that's, that's responsibility. David, David is protecting the priest here. David is providing for the priest. David is preserving this one priest who escaped. With me, you'll be safe, he says in verse 23. Now, don't misunderstand. Don't, I don't want you to miss this. It's very important. So if you're asleep, wake up just for a minute. <laughs> Abiathar's escape and safety is a sign of how God always always preserves his people in the midst of destruction. In fact, his name, Abiathar, means my father remains, my God remains. He will perform priestly duties for David for most of his life. He'll be replaced at the end uh, by, by, by a man named uh, Zadok, who Solomon replaces. But Abiathar is another display of the pattern God seems to follow in Scripture. Now listen, as of as, as all of Israel infants, all, all their sons, all the babies are ordered by Pharaoh's decree, God preserves one boy who makes all the difference. His name is Moses, the lawgiver. He, he's the one who rescued and redeemed Israel out of slavery. In 1 Kings 19, when, when Baal had conquered and seemed to be lord and master over Israel, God says there, there are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to that wicked man. In 2 Kings 11, Athelah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead and she rose in desire to destroy the royal family in hopes of, of doing away with the Davidic line. If God had a faithful woman who made sure that baby Joash would not fall to her murderous sword. And then there is Herod who comes to town, who gets, who gets told by a wise man that there's the Messiah, and he puts an order and a decree out and says, kill every son, two years and under in Bethlehem and in the regions around, and one man escapes, one boy, one baby, one infant, one toddler. His name is Jesus the Christ. Abiathar stands as a witness to the way God adamantly preserves a remnant of his people. The priest of God may be destroyed, but not completely. The people of God may often be put down but never, ever put out. Ralph David in his commentary says this, Abiathar's escape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. The Lord does not promise that he, the Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. 
If that is what we are seeking, it is comforting news, end quote. At this point, there's nothing David can do. They're slaughtered. But one thing David can do is offer safety and sanctuary to Abiathar. And now Saul's out looking for the king-elect and the priest-elect. They're all future, uh, they're all fellow uh, uh, fugitives. Now, if you were David, and this is going on in your life, you just found out, you're implicated in the mess, you're holding a priest, and you know everything that's gone on is all that. What would you say? What would you write? What song could you possibly say and sing? What poem would you write? I'm glad you asked. Keep your finger in Psalm 52 again. Look what he says. This is going on, right? So 85 priests dead, 300 people in the town are dead, and this is what David writes, Psalm 52, verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I, Psalm 52 verse 8, love this. But I, King David says, in the midst of all this, I am a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Forever and ever, surrounded by evil, surrounded by a paranoid king that wants my life, surrounded by a horrifying uh, um, slaughter of, of innocent people in God's providence, I'm implicated, but I will trust in the steadfast Hebrew chesed of God. Remember, we said the steadfast love, the chesed is not simply love, it's, it's a loyal love. It's not just kindness, but faithful kindness, not just purely affection, but an affection that is devoted to someone. It's God's personal commitment. It's his faithful, loyal love that no one deserves. Listen, God Almighty graciously enters into a covenant relationship with his people. He has bound himself toward us. He is utterly faithful to his self-commitment. And this chesed, is what God is who God is and what God promises in his covenant with us. And David recognizes the faithfulness and the covenant love and loyal love and mercy and kindness of God and says in verse 23 to the other to Abiathar, stay with me, stay here. Don't be afraid. He who seeks my life seeks your life with me. You are safe. Now family, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that pointing to the greater king, Jesus the Christ? Isn't that where God displays said in the new covenant, shed in his blood? Jesus is the true and better David, the true and better anointed one, true and better Christ. He's the true and better king. Jesus, who was opposed by the Antichrist, the devil himself, and crushed him and defeated him, says to us in the gospel, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life with me, you shall be in safekeeping. And what does he do? He purposely and voluntarily allows the enemy, the one who seeks his life, to take his life so that you and I can always be safe. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. Colossians 2.13. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. God made us alive, forgiving us of our sins, canceling the record of debt you and I owe that stood between us and God through its legal demands. And he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, listen, he disarmed the rulers and uh, demonic authorities, put them to open shame. He He triumphed over them, triumphing over them in the gospel. 
the cross, the empty tomb. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been freed. The greatest enemy, the greatest enemy, the penalty of our sins, the greatest enemy, eternal separation from God has been defeated. Sins have been forgiven. And by faith, the righteousness of Christ imputed to the believer, by faith, we now stand in his righteousness and love and reconciliation has taken place, and therefore we are forever loved by the steadfast chesed of God. Brian Chapel, senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church, he's the president of uh, Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, uh, wrote a book, In the Grip of Grace. He tells this story, and I'm going to share the story with you, and then we'll close. On August 16th, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed. Just before taking off from Detroit Airport, killing 155 people, one survived. A four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. News accounts say that the rescuers first found for Cecilia, they thought that she was not on the plane. The investigators first assumed she was in the passenger car near the highway where the plane crashed. But when the passenger register for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seat, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around Cecilia, and then would not let her go. Nothing could separate the child from her mother's love, neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that followed, neither height nor death, neither life nor death. He writes, like the child caught in the middle of that disaster, so we have been trapped by our own sin, spiraling down to an inevitable doom. But God. But our God loved us so much that he left heaven. He came down to our level and covered us with the sacrifice of his own body so that we might be saved from the fall. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. The gospel is we are doomed. The gospel is by ourselves we have no hope. The gospel is that we will never, ever, ever on our own conquer the enemy of sin, death, the grave, or Satan. But Jesus Christ, the true and better king, the ultimate anointed one, the seed of the promise is slaughtered on our behalf. He takes the sword in our place. His blood is spilled for our sins. And when you know that, when you know that, when you embrace that, when you, when you preach that to yourself every day, the steadfast love of God, you rely upon him alone, the enemies that really matter, listen, the enemies that really matter are vanquished and conquered, and you are safe in the arms of God. Not from pain, not from trials, n- not, not from tribulations. Paul says those are mo- momentary, right? Don't lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you know that? Do you know that in the midst of your struggles and your pain, that God is sovereign over the universe? You've trusted him as David trusted in him? Do you recognize that Jesus Christ was slaughtered on your behalf so that no matter what takes place in this world, you are safe in his arms? Judgment done at the cross, wrath poured out at the cross, and we are safe in Jesus' arms. I hope you know that this morning. The band's going to come up, we're going to sing, we're going to sing to the glory of God, and we're going to give him all the praise and glory that belongs to him alone. Father, thank you for your son who gave his life 
for us. He willingly and voluntarily laid down his life, turned it over to those who'd want him dead, yet death could not hold him in the ground. He rose from the dead victorious over the greatest enemy of sin, death, the grave, and the enemy, Satan himself. Lord, we give you the praise and glory. Help us as we sing and respond to, to grow in our faith, to trust you more, to love you more, to worship you, Lord, in spirit and truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.